you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. All right, you ready? Okay. <clears throat> so I'm sitting at a table between my mother and father. She's a born-again Christian. He's a lapsed Catholic. And I'm being pulled. See, I want to take the dog for a walk, but it's cold out. Moms thinks a walk would be good for me. No está haciendo frío, frío. But Pops is worried I'm going to catch a cold. Un resfriado. They're both trying to protect me. But all they're doing is personifying this duality in me that itches something awful. It's the winter of 2017, and just 150 miles north of us, with most of humanity blissfully unaware, SpaceX is getting ready to launch a 229-foot-tall rocket called Falcon 9 off the Santa Barbara coast. Back home, my mom is clearly winning the argument and making some out-of-this-world tamales rojos while doing so. So Pops decides, since it's no está haciendo frío, he's going to go outside and put up the Christmas lights. The Falcon 9 launches, leaving a tail of exhaust plume that catches, depending on which of my parents you believe, in the crisp or icy Southern California stratosphere, pulling rays of twilight to create a striking visual of what looks to me like a bright white halo. The effect captures the imagination of millions. Social media goes bright with videos, photos, and theories, and my whole family goes out to the front yard to see the spectacle. Pop sees it and says, must be Koreans bombing us, and goes back to putting up Christmas lights. Mom sees it and says, must be God showing his magnificence, and goes back to making tamales. These are the people who raised me in a valley between faith and cynicism to be both a 229-foot-tall rocket and the starlight that makes it glow. I'm Eric Galindo, and this is Wild. to you, I grew up a very good girl. I do not know the Mandarin Chinese word for sex. I am fluent in Mandarin Chinese, you guys. Ni hao ma, ha You know? <laughs> fluent. But to this day, I do not know the Mandarin Chinese word for sex. I decided I'll ask my mom. Okay, so this is how it went. Imagine this all went down in Chinese, okay? So I'm like, ma, what's the word for when two people go to bed together? She's like, hmm, sleeping. 
When the world shut down, crowded laughter disappeared. Tickets stopped selling. Clubs canceled tours. Stages gathered dust. Some comedians stopped working. But Jenny, someone who has pivoted her entire life, found herself pivoting once again. I wonder how much of how much of stand up is the live audience like what what percentage of the, of the joy you get from telling jokes is the reaction of the audience I'll tell you this when the live audience is gone you feel that real quick <laughs> you get that answer real quick This is Jenny Yang She used to be a political strategist and an activist and she was great at that now she's a successful stand-up comic and TV writer. It seems like a leap to pivot from politics to telling jokes for a living, but it kind of makes sense if you know where Jenny came from. But I remember being five years old and being fascinated by how there's actually walnuts that would fall to the ground on American streets. Like, food just falls to the floors in public? This is America. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. We... we we, we like, have parks where we just swim in water and food falls from the trees. <laughs> Did you grow up in San Gabriel Valley? No. Well, I first landed in the San Gabriel Valley in Rosemead when I was five. And then my dad, we, we moved to America from Taiwan because my dad worked for China Airlines at LAX. And then my mom, for a time being, was uh, a garment worker in Chinatown in L.A. And so we first moved to Rosemead because that's where our people were. And, like, you kind of get acclimated. But after maybe six months, he was like, I'm not going to make this trip down to El Segundo and LAX. So we moved to Hawthorne, then we moved to Torrance, like, for the most part, yeah. Did you come from a big family? No, I would say um, because of immigration, I don't consider myself having a big family. It was, like, my mom, my, my dad, and then my two older brothers. To me, my family, obviously, is also in mainland China and Taiwan, like, dad's side and my mom's side. When people ask me if I, have, if I come from a big family, I always say no, because I always was jealous of the other kids who had, like, uncles and aunties who could show them things. Like, I was, like, five years old. My brothers were much older. My parents didn't know English that well. Like, I figured out a lot of American culture shit. Like, I had to navigate that. Like, I was five years old. I learned English faster than any of the other people in my family. From watching The Simpsons or what? Oh, my God. Just like, well, yeah, watching cartoons. Like, I was, uh, I'm probably older than you. I like Animaniacs. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, Chippendales, Rescue Rangers. Oh, man. The way Chip, the way they ate sandwiches on Chippendales, I was like, how come my sandwich never looks like that? <laughs> like, I'm eating a torta, you know? My mom's making tortas and I'm like, What's how come I can't have a square sandwich, mom? Was were your parents funny? Like, how did you what what inspired the transition to to stand up? Yeah, so I don't know. I people ask me this question a lot, and I always find it so funny. Like, I don't know about you, because like your first language is Spanish, right? Like, do you feel like you ever have like a firewall between your Spanish brain and like America brain? That's how it was for me. Like home life was so separate from outside life because I didn't have a lot of Chinese speaker friends outside of home. And so I think in my brain, it was very like walled off. For sure. So yeah. like, for example, I didn't realize my mom was sarcastic. You know what I'm saying? Until like 
five years ago. <laughs> you know, I just thought, oh, my mom's mean. You know what I mean? Or like, she's just like, she just, that's how she talks to us. But like in American, it's like, oh yeah, sarcasm. It's like when people say what they don't mean and they try to do that to make a passive aggressive point. Right. You know what I mean? So like stuff like that, I realized, I was like, oh, my mom is fucking hilarious. She is always commenting and make talking shit, especially because she could talk shit in Chinese out loud and no one will understand. So she'll all just be like making fun of people what they're wearing like like my mom like for example my mom told me a story it was like the beginning of the pandemic okay and you know everyone was looking at asian people sideways because they're like oh you have the chinese flu right so mm. she's at the local ralph's all right and she's like has her mask on and this was at the beginning before everything was required remember like there was a mm. soft moment where it was like no not everyone has to wear a mask but like all the asians rolled up like oh, we know this and then right. they like pulled up their masks so she went to the Ralphs and she said she felt people turning away from her, kind of like non Asians, like lots of white people. And then she was like laughing to me about it. And then she's like, you know what I'm going to do next time? I'm going to go to the, the supermarket. And uh, she's like, and then she, which basically means like, I'm going to write down on a sign, I am not sick and wear it on my shirt. <laughs> I was like, dang, mom. See, mom's got jokes. I was like, why is she sarcastic like this? I didn't even right. realize that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, that's so cool. Did, did, is there, like, for, for people who don't know, what's the difference between, like, is there a difference between your Taiwanese family and your mainland Chinese family? Oh, 100%. Like, I don't know. Most people listening probably aren't hip to the geopolitical issues. <laughs> but like basically the quick version is, is like in 1940s, Mao, Chairman Mao came to power and the communists took over. And so basically pushed away the KMT or Kuomintang or Nationalist Party. And they like took refuge in a tiny island that was just off of the East Coast. And that's Taiwan. They probably did some stuff to indigenous people too, which is messed up. But you know, that's neither here nor there. And then established Taiwan as we know it. And so in a weird way, Taiwan is kind of like a 1940s time capsule of China, if that makes sense. And then China kind of uh, developed on its own course. I think similar to sort of Hong Kong issues, right, where you're like China, but it's not. They, there's that same identity and political conflict. And so for me, being from Taiwan is very specific. Uh, my Taiwanese family is my mom's side, and they were there multiple generations, probably originating from China, even though there might be some mixing with indigenous. But yeah, yeah, it's like that's its own thing because for so long it was closed off. You know what I mean? They did not let a lot of information pass between mainland and the rest of the world, much less people. And so finally when they opened up, I remember visiting a number of years ago just like as a grown ass woman like, oh, I want to know what mainland's like. And um, it was kind of freaky because so poor still, but then in like cities like Shanghai, it's like so rich and people, it's like a gold rush for people to go from like farming, just super skyscraper capitalism in like less than a decade. It's a, it's a whiplash effect culturally. This is the stuff I think about. Like I, I always wondered like, oh, what is it going to do to like the mainland Chinese people to like develop that way? But I feel like my family on that side too also is a part of that, that growth. So that has been your moment in China and Taiwan geopolitical history. <laughs> Wild will return after this commercial break. 
The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com slash sweeps. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com slash events. Now back to the show. Damn. Jenny's smart. It's not just high IQ, though. Her brain just switches gears from cracking jokes to very important history, and she says it in a way that makes sense and even feels entertaining. But on the real, though, you you, you actually began your career in politics, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I got very politicized in college like a lot of people. So I was like, oh, class analysis, race analysis, gender sexuality analysis, you know, and then perform poetry because that's what you do when you're a student activist in college. (laughs) And then came back to LA and I worked for nonprofits and uh, Asian American communities, went to grad school at UCLA for urban planning, worked for a labor union that represented LA County public employees. So I know LA in deep in multiple layers and I love it. But I think at some point I was like, man, this world is not is not good for my creativity and life is short, YOLO, you know, that whole thing. And I was like, I'm getting burnt out from working for the labor union, giving much of my valuable 20s to the movement. And then I was like, I need to perform. So that's how I got into comedy. I think it's interesting, though. Do you remember like the moment you were on stage and started telling jokes? Like, can you, can you describe that a little bit for me? Um, so there's this LA space called uh, Tuesday Night Cafe, Tuesday Night Project. It's probably one of the longest running open mic and multidisciplinary performance art spaces in Little Tokyo. Sometimes I lay awake in my own bed. I hope that I'm still dreaming. Alarm clock saying it's 6 a.m. But I don't want to get... Can we turn that up just a little bit more, please? Okay, cool. Yo, I come to you humbly as an artist with no imagination. A song with large and a crown with no king. I'm a lovable cast. Because I used to perform poetry, I had become a regular there, sometimes co-hosting. It was sort of like my home performance space. And uh, when I realized I'm a burnout on this political career, if I go back into work and I don't have an outlet that's creative, I'm going to punch somebody. I like decided I will be open to creative possibilities and what the universe tells me. Because in the past, people would tell me I'm a certain way, but I would like deny it, you know, like, oh, you know, you'd be very good at this or whatever, like creatively. And so finally, one day, like the 20th time I was at a party, I was telling a story. I made people laugh. Someone just stopped and looked at me like very seriously. There was like a, like a dramatic pause, like, you know what, Jenny? You're, you're funny like a comedian. This is Jenny Yang's Hollywood boot camp. You are the first class of my next internship interns. Only the strong will survive. Do you want to work at Hollywood? Queen, yes, queen. 
Well, I'm sure you heard the horror stories. Well, they're all true. Hollywood is a desperate succubus leeching off the energy and innocence of your dreams. Everyone wants the glamour, no one wants the work. Embrace the suck. Queen, yes, queen! And I was like, what? And I heard it. And I was like, okay, before the end of the year, I'm going to do a stand-up comedy. I just said it. And so, yeah, I like, I had no, I like Googled it maybe. I had no idea what I was doing. I like wrote all of these notes. I was like, what's a joke? I don't even know what a joke was. I remember going up at a Tuesday Night Cafe show and I was like, I'm so nervous, guys. I was going to throw up, but I didn't. And I was just like, so here's some stuff. I pulled up the paper. I remember I like, there was like bathroom jokes. There was like poop jokes. There was like, you know, I compared my my boyfriend's balls to dingleberries and Chinese medicine balls. It was all the worst hits of like beginner stand-up comedians, you know, bathroom humor. Was there any sort of feeling like, oh shit, this is great? Or were you just like, oh man, this is hard? I thought, man, this is the hardest thing I've done in forever. It's so challenging, but I could feel the the tingling magic of what the upside could be. I was like, if I could do this well, there's a huge potential. To all the people who appreciate a little something from my homeland, Taiwan. Tapioca milk tea is what I like. I just want to rap about it when I'm on the mic. It's real smooth, kind of creamy with yokas to savor and Because it's very freeing, you know, it's just you and you get to talk about what you want to talk about. And all you need, the price of entry for a stand-up comedian is just to make people laugh, right? And so if you can make people laugh, then you get to make them think about things you want them to think about, expose them to worlds and ideas that you think is important. And so that's very powerful. And it's like five minutes to one hour, whatever whatever level of comedian you are. For that stage time, you get uh, a captive audience, you know, especially if you're you're funny. But yeah, that's what I realized. What was your uh, approach to like finding your voice? Did did you did you view life as more of a satire or like this this ironic comedy? My freshman year of high school, yeah, I rewrote a Snoop Dogg rap song <laughs> for trigonometry class. <laughs> I would say that if I were to think of a consistent thread of how I think is satirically, it's making fun of something that exists, something that usually has a social consequence or political consequence. The coronavirus has a lot of Americans scared of Asians. So Andrew Yang says we can't make them be less racist. We just have to be more American. Let's see if that works. Come on. I'm ready to be more American. No takers. USA. You know, um, so if you look at my videos, if you look at my most of my tweeting, which is a lot of stuff for public consumption, I care about being a part of the conversation. And so if I believe that as like a public conversation moves and shifts either through broadcast media or through social media, and I notice that there's an an element of it that's just bending a little too sideways, I get mad. You know what I mean? I'm like, no, it, it it shouldn't shift that way. I want to lend my voice to maybe push it back in the other direction, if possible. You had all this momentum going in to 2020, right? You've been on this career trajectory and then this pandemic happened and it sort of 
takes you away from your audience, right? Like it takes you away from what you love to do. Like I can't imagine like what what that must have felt like. Oh my God. I feel like depressed like everyone else. Because I was worried. I, You know, honestly, I wasn't as worried about my livelihood because luckily I was employed. But I think I was upset creatively because I was ready. I was raring to go. Our mutual friend, uh, Javier Cabral, was booked uh, as a guest on a live variety show that I was like putting on. I had sold tickets for it. He was he was booked on it and I was upset that I wasn't able to fulfill creative visions that I had of like trying stuff out. But honestly, I would say that was maybe like 40%. But the other 60% of my upsetness was at the world. At being like, man, there's so much suffering happening right now. Frankly, I, I felt like there was a lack of leadership in our public elected officials. And so I think that upset me the most, the sort of feeling of helplessness. I think after about a month of crying and like, you know, getting obsessed with anything I could to like take my mind off things, I think I realized I got to go toward the thing that I know is soothing me, which is making fresh pasta, playing Animal Crossing on Nintendo Switch, and uh, being on Zoom with friends, you know? During the first month of the pandemic, I was so blown away by how quickly some comedians pivoted and were just like, all right, next week, what's up? We're going to do Instagram live stand-up comedy. And I was like, I even did one. And I remember watching and being like, this is the saddest. You're like on Instagram live. There's no audience. It's just you and whoever you're like duo talking with. And maybe they're laughing, maybe they're not. But like, it just felt like you were just telling jokes into a hallway. Try that. Try try tell, like, talking to a hallway. See how that feels. I'm good. <laughs> I mean, I, I talk to myself all the time, but I get I get what you're saying. Half of a, sh a live comedy show for stand-up comedy is about the audience laughter. A hundred percent crowd participation, even though you're not like sticking out as one single voice, you're giving feedback, you're giving energy. There is nothing like it. The closest thing we could figure out was to have a big Zoom meeting where some people were unmuted so that you could hear their laughter, but it's not the same. At this point in the pandemic, everything was closed, including comedy clubs where Jenny Yang thrived. But she was really enjoying the way humanity could stay connected through something else she loved, video games. Then this idea hit her to combine three things she loved to do, stand-up and social justice, and her love of the video game Animal Crossing. Yeah, uh, Comedy Crossing is a stand-up comedy show that happens online. It's in a big Zoom meeting. Once it happens, it's over. There's no recording that you could watch. There's no rebroadcast of it. But the, the weird part of it is once you get into the Zoom meeting, you watch a shared screen from my computer of me playing uh, a Nintendo Switch video game called Animal Crossing, which is basically like Sims, but with like cute-ass Japanese art characters and animals on an island. Honestly, it's like the thing that saved me, saved my sanity in 2020 as a personal gamer person playing the game, but also uh, as an outlet that is able to uh, keep people's attention and still be able to bring stand-up comedians on and for me to have a place where I could bring people together. It wasn't just the novelty that made her Zoom show stand out above all the others. Jenny was talking about stuff that mattered. I launched this show online right around the time that George Floyd was murdered. 
And what helped out was like, I always knew it was going to be free, but I then that gave it even more of a focus and, an, and a way for me to feel like I could do something about something awful that was happening in the world. So immediately from the jump, like first show in June, we said, this is a free show, come one, come all. But if you can donate, a bulk of that donation will go to any number of the Black Lives Matter causes and funds that were popping up at the time. And as we know, sadly, there were way too many causes and funds that needed support. And so every week we've been able to support another fund. So yeah, we raised like over $30,000 for Black Lives Matter causes since June. Is that a cause that you find like that is very personal to you? Yeah, I think to me, as someone who very early on realized that a sense of justice and, and social justice and economic justice was important and sort of being very aware of how racialized everything is from an early time being a little immigrant kid, then having then finally the language and the analysis in college, you know, the movement for Black Lives, even though it's coined that now, has been going forever. We're just living the—we are living the descendants of uh, the civil rights movements from before. You know, because of social media, we've been able to see in much sharper relief how the injustice and the frequency of it. You know, maybe it hasn't increased. Maybe it's always been there. But now that we all have cell phone cameras, we could actually see it and share it. And it's heartbreaking, right? The, the just I think just the if you're if you're alive and you're not upset by the the sort of, you know, fire hose of, of injustice and sadness and violence, you know, hitting people, especially people who are black. It, you, you're not living. You cannot have a pulse if you're not feeling it. It wasn't that long ago. You didn't really have to talk about politics. People could kind of slide under the radar and just be like, oh, shit, that's like something that's happening out there for the really activisty people. I don't need to say anything. I could just keep my opinions to myself. But in the last five years or so, right, whether it's Trump being elected or whatever, there's become this sense of urgency that you have to come on down on one side of justice or not. Right. I think even prior to that, for me, that didn't happen with George Floyd. That happened more so in terms of my public persona in 2014 when Michael Brown Jr. was shot in Ferguson. That was a wake-up call for me because for me, I thought, I'm pivoting from working for the labor movement. Okay, I'm now working Hollywood, guys. Maybe on social media, I'm not going to talk so much about my political stuff anymore. I get the privilege of doing that now that I'm a comedian and I could talk about the dick jokes and the dating jokes, you know? And, and maybe I felt a little pressure to be safer because who knows? I don't want to ruffle feathers. And maybe I don't want to like turn people off who might be able to hire me for something, you know? Mm. It wasn't until Michael Brown Jr. was laying there in the heat, his body disrespected, undignified, and the subsequent treatment of that death. It upset me so deeply. I said, fuck this. I'm going to talk about this shit 24-7 <laughs> if I need to because this is the sense of urgency I feel about it. And people are going to know about it. Right. Interestingly enough, a lot of people DM me because of that, because I would summarize the latest news on my social media in a concise way. And they would say, thank you. I'm not able to read all this stuff. I could just check your social media and I could find out what's happening. And so that was a big lesson and a turning point for me in terms of my social media, which apparently is means everything these days. <laughs> a lot of people might brand you as kind of like a, a woke comment or like, is, is there such thing as woke comedy? Is there feminist comedy are those words that you kind of try to stay away from or do you embrace that? 
Um, I think every comedian you talk to will want to say they just want to be known as a, as funny and a comedian. But we're also whole human beings. And, you know, it's like, I love, Harry Kondabolu loves talking about that this way. He might be sort of dubbed as a woke comedian. Comedy is not like just capital C comedy. There's like so many branches and tastes. It's like music. You know what I'm saying? Like, do you like Pantera versus Ariana Grande? <laughs> sure. I know. Those are two... I don't even know. I couldn't name a Pantera song or an Ariana Grande song. But they both dated Pete Davidson, right? Oh, yeah, of course. Who hasn't? Uh, <laughs> to me, I'm just a human being trying to be a comedian and also trying to talk about things I care about, which is what most comedians do. And if it happens to be stuff that you might categorize as woke or social justice, then feel free. What's the word when, for when two people go to bed together and they really want to be there? And you and I both know <laughs> it doesn't matter whether or not they're married. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, white people. Do you feel as a comedian you have a social responsibility? Do you feel like as an immigrant, as this, as a child of immigrants, or as just like as a person? Oh my God, as a person. Are you kidding me? I believe you can do shit wherever you are. You know what I mean? You don't need any title in order to act or care about the world. You know what I'm saying? I think that's the biggest fallacy that people will sell in order to keep people from getting involved, right? To be like, no, you got to be 100% black power, fists up, nonstop political purity in order to do anything. And that's just not the truth, you know? Unless you're starting out a commune that's off the grid, all right? No one is politically pure. And so it's just a matter of how do we live and how do we continue to try to do better and care for each other together, you know? And so that's all we can ask for. So to me, you know, for me to speak out about stuff, it's just to be alive. You know what I'm saying now? But I also happen to be a stand-up comedian. And so I know I can make people laugh. And I know it's, it's the marathon, not the sprint. While details are still coming out about this devastating act of violence, there is at least one fact that we do know. Six out of the eight people murdered were of Asian descent. You know what's wild? Sometimes I feel like I'm on that rocket headed to outer space, the ground going from under me, and I can't really hang on to anything. The way time was kind of destroyed by the pandemic really made me understand that feeling much more clearly. Because sometimes, especially when wild shit happens, time is just broken, man. This altered time-space, coupled with the sheer loss of life and just bad shit in general that seemed to happen over and over again during the pandemic, makes it hard to hang on. Jenny Yang and I spoke in the winter of 2020, right before I and huge parts of Los Angeles got COVID. And it feels like the world has been pivoting much more ever since. So much happened after that, including a rise in anti-Asian sentiment and high-profile incidents of violence toward that community. One particularly heartbreaking incident happened on March 16th in Atlanta. After all, last night's killing comes at a time when reports of hate crimes against Asian American Pacific Islanders are at a record high, especially against women, and six of those victims were women. Now, just for some Even that context, feels like forever ago. But I don't ever want to move on at the speed of a SpaceX rocket. Not by forgetting, at least. Remembering is an important part of getting better. 
And there are marginalized communities in El Paso, Orlando, Pittsburgh, Jersey City, Atlanta, and so much more that do not have the luxury of forgetting. And I get it. Remembering shit hurts. A lot at first. Then less and less. Thanks to the starlight of hope and love my mama gave me and the lessons I take from Jenny Yang, I know the fight for a better life for all of us is a marathon, not a sprint. Now here's Jenny Yang one more time reading the names of the Americans we lost to racism and gun violence on the 16th of March. Delena Ashley Young, Paul Andre Michelle, Xiao Jie Tan, Da Yo Feng, Julie Park. this week are I woke up with a sore throat and I was scared that I had the Rona but your boy took a test and it turns out I was negative. I made myself a meatball parmesan sandwich and it was bomb. Didn't realize you could make meatballs in like 45 minutes. Today I slept in until about 10 a.m. And I've been helping my sister with her high school homework and she's been doing better in school. For me, it's been a long journey of unpacking feelings of not being good enough and not being worthy. And I think a lot of those feelings came from childhood. A lot of those things within our families, but then how our families um, function due to the systems that they were brought up in. That was Linda Yvette Chavez, who overcame a lifelong struggle with imposter syndrome to become a director during the pandemic. That's on the next episode of Wild. This episode of Wild was written and produced by Eric Lindo, Shaka Mali, Marina Pena, and me, Megan Tan. It was sound designed by Lushik Waba and engineered by Eduardo Perez. Our producers are Victoria Alejandro and Lushik Waba. Marina Pena is our associate producer and fact checker. Shaka Mali is an associate producer at large and our announcer. I'm Megan Tan, the senior producer, Eric Galindo is our host and editor. Jessica Pilot is our talent producer. Our executive producers are Antonia Cerejido and Leo G. Thanks to Cesar Hernandez, Lexis Olivier Ray, and Laura Tejeda. Shout out to Marisa Klug Morataya for shooting our album art and Steve Rosa for the assists. The theme song is I Got Everything by Ms. 007. Our website, eliastudios.com, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital team and by our marketing team who also created our branding. Wild is a production of Elias Studios, which includes Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. I nailed it, I think. This is Eric G. I'll catch you next time. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.
Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com events. See you there.